Praise God. Praise God. Come on, do you love Jesus this morning? We're not just going through the motions, are we? <clears throat> awesome. Well, I'm super excited about this word today. We, uh, first of all, thank you so much for showing up today. Anytime we see 10 o'clock game Sunday morning with the Seahawks, we know there's a gang of folks that are going to be worshiping at the church of Russell Wilson. So I, I thank you for being uh, here today. And uh, make sure next week, I've said this before, but if you know somebody who's at that church, when they come next week, don't even look them in the eyes. Let's just give them Holy Spirit shame. Uh, no. Uh, Eddie did such a great job last week introducing bilingual faith. <clears throat> So he set it up really nice, and we're in our vision series. Uh, we talked about bold engagement. These are our values, our pillars in the church, and the things that um, culturally um, we uh, want to be known for, we want to operate in. And so we talked about bold engagement. You can listen to those sermons online. But now we're into the second value or pillar or um, area of culture, and that is bilingual faith. Before we get into this bilingual faith idea, part two today, I want to jump into the playlist time machine, and I want us to take a trip back to February 21st, 1995. And I want to hit just a little snippet of a throwback album called Relish by Joan Osborne. And uh, I don't know if you remember this song, but it's called One of Us. DJ, go ahead and spin this track real quick. Anybody remember that song, right? Some of you Christians got in trouble for listening to it, played it off like it was a Christian song, and then uh, mom heard the lyrics, a slob like one of us, what are they talking about? Some of you had some flashbacks right there, right? School dance, sock hop, I don't know what you called it, but it's 1995. What I thought was interesting, listen to the song, and I didn't play the whole thing, but talks about, you know, would God have a face like one of us? you know, riding the bus like one of us. Basically, it's this idea and poses this question in this song, like, can you imagine if God was a human and you could look God in the face and in essence, she's posing this idea, like, imagine if God came here and walked a mile in our shoes. But I don't, I don't know if she realized this or the writer of the song realized this, but Scripture answers very clearly the question that she was posing. And this is the whole premise of bilingual faith, is that God actually did become one of us. That God did have a face, and he did walk a mile in our shoes. And he did long for home, and he longed for us to be reconnected with home. And so this idea that Jesus came in the form of of man, although he was fully God, is really at the heart of what bilingual faith means. And so I got this term, I was praying and I was studying the scriptures and I was just reading, like, why did Jesus give law to the proud and grace to the humble? Like, it was like anybody who was super prideful that kept using religion to try and like catch Jesus, he didn't really show them, you don't, I mean, read it yourself, he has grace for everybody, but but those who are trying to 
trying to manipulate the face and the heart of God, they seem to get law given back to them. And, and those who are soft and, and want to know, they seem to get grace given to them. And, and I thought it was interesting because you look at the Pharisees, they were so jealous. They saw him doing the miracles. They couldn't refute him. They tried to trap him. They couldn't trap him. He just seemed to shape shift out of every single trap they set. And it must have drove him crazy. It must have drove him crazy that they had, he had crowds in three years just instantly. And they've been working their whole life to get a little, to get some love and some, you know, following. And, and, and just didn't have the following. And then Jesus is constantly rebuking them, calling them snakes and vipers and hypocrites and sons of the devil and whitewashed tombs. And who warns you about the wrath to come? Who told you about this private meeting? You know, just Jesus seemed to be so hard on him. And I thought like, wow, this is interesting because Jesus is truth. He is the word of God. But he seemed to connect with prostitutes and sinners and drunks and folks that are lonely and broken and single moms and those who live in shame and those who are marginalized by race and, and abused by power and have no voice and don't have an advocate. Jesus seemed to be able to connect with them and they just, they flocked to him and You'd think in the presence of a holy God who was sinless, you wouldn't want to be any, anywhere near that. Because in the Old Testament, like you die if you're in the presence of God and, and you have sin. And yet Jesus comes and he demonstrates who God is. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, what is God like? What if God was one of us? What would he be like? We have the answer. He would be like Jesus. Yeah. Right? You want to know God? Look at Jesus. There's no difference. And so... This bilingual faith idea, it hit me. I'm like, wow, Jesus was bilingual. He spoke the language of heaven and the language of earth. The Pharisees only spoke the language of heaven. They memorized the scriptures. They knew all, they knew the Torah, the law and the prophets, but they could not connect with humanity because they didn't speak the language of a broken human in a plight of desperation, trying to reach out to a God who feels a million miles away. And the Pharisees could not speak a language that built a bridge. Jesus came and he spoke the language of heaven, but he did so in a way by first coming to our world. He didn't, he didn't say, you want, you want to meet me, come to my world. He said, if we're going to bring redemption and salvation, let me leave streets of gold and come to streets of dust and dirt. I'm going to leave perfection and I'm going to come to imperfection. And, and when he showed up, he fed the hungry and he loved people and he was patient and he walked with folks and children sat on his lap and he touched lepers and he got his hands dirty. That's what I'm talking about. You know, bilingual faith has dirty hands and a clean heart, right? And so you, you also see folks, even today, many Christians and churches, I feel like bilingual faith is a hard balance because it really takes this idea of having our feet on earth and our heart in heaven. And that's a tough deal. How do I embrace humanity and yet live in spirituality? And you see some churches even, and I've known Christians, and I think we all waffle back and forth, but they're really good at the language of earth, but not heaven. And that's the kind of church that's really uncomfortable with the supernatural, with faith and prayer and the Holy Spirit speaking to you and believing for miracles and, and holiness and repentance. And they'll meet you where you're at, but they won't call you out of sin into a life of Christ-likeness, 
right? So we don't want to be that either. We don't want to just speak the language of earth and, hey, I connect with you on your humanity, but I don't build a bridge the other way and get you to walk in a life of sanctification. That's not God's plan either. To be a church that really reaches the world, we've got to be able to speak both languages. How many agree with that today? One of the greatest compliments you could receive or I could receive or this church has received is folks that come in here and they say, man, I feel the Holy Ghost here, but you guys are just so normal. You're so down to earth. Like, how can those two be? How can you have the Holy Spirit here and yet not be weird? You know what I'm saying? But I think that this is, this is God's plan is that the supernatural should kind of look natural in a lot of ways. That, that when we pray for people, we don't have to like build up this like body earthquake. And, and I've seen some manifestations that I, and I don't, I'm careful not to mock because God can do what he wants whenever he wants, right? I remember like, man, I, 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 sorry, I'm sidetracking here, but I went on this tour a long time ago and, and I saw the laughter thing. And, and, and I was like, man, this is crazy. Like what is going on? People laughing on the spirit rolling around. And it got out of hand and you know, there was, people tickling each other with fake plants at the altar. Like one service, people birthing spirit animals, like laying on the ground in, I mean, I'm dead serious. And you had a spirit eagle and it's a Holy Spirit bear. I mean, just crazy stuff. And so I was like, man, this is crazy. But then I actually witnessed a woman like who I knew very well suffering from depression. And she like got hit with the Holy Spirit, began to, to laugh. And it was so genuine. And that night, she got set free. So I'm not the one who can say, this is God, that's not. Now, you'll know them by their fruits and anything done outside of scripture, obviously we judge. But all that to say is, I think bilingual faith is being deeply spiritual and deeply normal at the same time. Because sometimes Jesus wants to do the miraculous in people's lives and people crave to connect with God but they stumble over our charismatic culture sometimes. And some of that stuff gets in the way and becomes a deterrent from them experiencing the culture of the kingdom because maybe we think uh, or we've been trained a certain way and it becomes a sidetrack. And so again, like the Holy Ghost is real, wants to move in our life, but our job is to connect with humanity and connect with heaven. And so here's what I think Satan does. I think Satan works in a couple different ways. I feel like he tries to minimize Jesus' divinity. He tries to minimize to many people. You look in the Muslim world, they actually have a high respect for Jesus. They believe he was a prophet. Um, they don't see him as the son of God. So they would say, yeah, we know he was a man, but he wasn't God. So Satan will work to minimize Jesus' divin divinity but I also think he works to sanitize Jesus' humanity. And this is where I feel once you've come to terms with the realization that Jesus Christ is the son of God and Satan knows, okay, I can't, they're saved. They, they see him as the son of God. What he does is he tries to minimize Jesus as the son of man. Do you follow that? Jesus is son of God and son of man. He is fully God and he is fully man. The incarnation is about Jesus coming fully as he already was 
to become something fully that he was not. Meaning that Jesus, the word of God, was not always a man. He came as God and he became a man. And what I think what the, what the devil does through religion is tries to tell us that if you want to be more spiritual, you want to be more like Christ, you want to be more holy, then that process will cause you to be less human. More holy must equal less human, but that's not what Jesus modeled. In fact, the more you become like Christ, the more you will become like you, the real you that God intended you to be. When I draw closer to the glory of God, I actually become closer to the Dave, the full capacity and the full measure Dave that Jesus Christ intended. Now, its expression will be less carnal, less sinful, less impure. But at the end of the day, God is not afraid of humanity. In fact, he was so not afraid of it that he embraced it. Now, here's the question. And this is the concern with creating bilingual faith is that I think sometimes one of the greatest hindrances in, in and through the church is religion's creation of a Lysol Jesus. Anybody use Lysol in your house? Kills 99.9% .9 of all germs, which for me isn't enough killing of germs. I'm a little OCD. I'm just saying like, I'll hit it twice to get that last hundredth of a percent, whatever it is. And this is my best friend, Lysol. And so let me go here. Now, if you know me, you've worked with me. I've, I've had a construction company. I'm, I'm not afraid. I, I will get down and dirty. I'm not afraid. I love hard work. I love dirt, mud, and blood, right? Like, I, I'm not afraid. Let's go hunt. Let's go fish. Let's do whatever. But when it comes to like my house and what I touch to my face, I've said this before, I have a real need for Lysol to stay in existence, right? I almost feel like I have this Holy Spirit, supernatural, prophetic Lysol vision. I can tell, like, if my kids have the cold or a flu, I have this sixth sense. I don't even have to be home. I could be out of town for a week, and I'll come back, and it'll be like, remember when you used to go to the club, and you'd walk through the entrance, and you'd pay your little fee, and you'd walk through that tunnel, and it had all the black lights, and all of a sudden, all the lint on your shirt would start popping? <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Don't act like you wasn't clubbing, right? <laughs> Maybe you didn't go to the blacklight clubs, but I did. And there were times, man, you went from dapper to dirty in a heartbeat, right? Like we know who was cleaned. We know who's suited and booted. And we know who spent no time working the lint roller, okay? All of a sudden, everybody's looking at you. You're trying to hide, taking the walk of shame back. Now you're just in your wife beater the rest of the night, right? Anyway, so... I feel like I have this sixth sense. It's like door handles and knobs start glowing where my children touched. And I will walk through the house, I kid you not. And again, my wife is a very, she does the same thing, but like I'm going after that hundredth of a percent, right? And uh, so I'll walk through with the Lysol wipes and the spray. I'm going after, I'm on a mission. I'm talking about doorknobs. I'm talking about the, the push button on the, the little lever on the toaster. I'm talking about chip clips. Like, hey kids. Who ate the chips? I did. Okay. Well, you have the flu. That chip clip's getting washed. Okay. I'm taking it. Connie's like, why are you spraying my head with Lysol? I'm like, the kids touched you. Right? No, they didn't. You were out of town. You weren't even home. I'm like, I see germs. Right? So 
I just have this sixth sense about it. Any other X-Men mutants have the same power? Raise your hand. All right, thank you. Um, but I, I feel like religion does the same thing in church. Like we go around and any sign of Jesus' humanity, we want to wash it away. We want to sanitize it. We want to clean it up. We don't want Jesus to be as human as the scriptures make him because somehow there's no way you can worship a God that was that human. I think honestly, this is what keeps men out of church. Women are more feelers. You know, women are, are cleaner creatures, right? Let's just be honest. Women are more by nature discerning and, and spiritual. Guys are too. I'm not saying that dudes aren't spiritual. Guys are still emotional. That's a fallacy when we say they're not. But I think that like when you dehumanize Jesus, it's a turnoff to men. Because when I know that my humanity is actually an expression of worship, it gives me the right to love creating and making and, and being a guy and being a human, knowing that God wants it to be an extension of my walk. But if you take that away, all of a sudden, I feel like I have to become somebody else to be a Christian. And so I feel like Satan has done an incredible job through religion of sanitizing Jesus in the church. Here's a question. Was Jesus more divine or human? Was Jesus or is he more spiritual than natural? Is he more God or man? And it almost feels like a sin to say that maybe Jesus was equally man as he is God. I don't mean just his 33 years. I'm talking about now. Here's what scripture says. Scripture says that he was just as much God as he was man. Now, I'm going to tell you in a second why this is important. And I know I'm taking extra time to build this up. But some of you are like, you're crazy. No, he must have been like 90-10. 90% God, 10% human, right, Dave? But no, no, no. He was fully God, fully man. And he is fully God, fully man, even now. Not under Adam's race. He rose from the dead. He conquered Adam's race. He rose with a celestial body. But let's get into this and let's talk about why it's important. Look at some of the ways we sanitize Jesus. How many have ever sung that song, Away in a Manger? Raise your hand. Come on, every hand should be up. I'm not gonna try and sing it. I don't sing. I can rap, but I can't sing. Away in a Manger. Here's the second verse. The cattle are lowing. The poor baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Okay, so they're given this picture of Jesus. This is, this, this is Lysol Jesus. Listen, I promise you, a human baby, if he wakes up to some cows mooing in his face, that child will freak out. <laughs> that child is gonna go buck nutty up in that crib, okay? And, and they got Jesus here though. No, no, no. Yes, the cows were mooing and they awoke baby Jesus, but he fretteth not because he's the God child. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I bet Jesus was screaming, face bright red purple. I bet he got the donkeys bucking. I, I bet he caused chaos in that little cave. Why? Because he's a baby. <laughs> baby Jesus still screamed at the top of his lungs and wet himself. And that sounds so bad to say. Some of you cringed in here. He just said, baby Jesus wet himself. <laughs> Listen, Jesus had a bladder, y'all. But it sounds so sacrilegious to say it. I mean, literally, in my spirit, I'm kind of scared that I keep talking. There's one, there's, 
There's a part of me that's literally saying, dude, you need to shut up. You're going to have a mass exodus worse than what happened in Egypt with Moses. Okay. But here's the thing. He, God is not afraid of that. God was not afraid of Jesus being human. Let's think about another way we sanitize Jesus. The virgin birth. Was it really a virgin birth? I don't think so. I think it was a virgin conception. I think that was the miracle. But Mary gave birth just like every other woman in Israel. Now, it was miraculous that she gave birth to the Son of God. But trust me, there was nothing sanitary about that birth. Okay, some of us get this picture like, number one, let's just look at the facts. Mary was a teenager. She might have been 14 years old. That's how young they were. People didn't live as long back then, right? But we have this picture of like, there they are, all cuddly in a cave, you know, in a, in a barn or a manger. And we make the manger look like, like the suite at the Hilton, right? It was cold. Listen, it didn't smell like Febreze and linen. It smelled like a horse stall. There were animals walking around. They weren't surrounded by nurses, right? There were no ice chips coming to Mary. There was no mango pre-funk before she got to get the epidural. There was no epidural, Right? Joseph didn't have a wristband on. He didn't go to the cafeteria and look through a menu and bring Mary back. No, it was, it was, it was blood, sweat, and tears, y'all. Little Mother Mary, precious Mother Mary. You know, we have this picture that she was there like pregnant as can be and she's playing footsies with Joseph and they're sipping tea and all of a sudden there's a spirit sparkle over her belly. And... And she gets a little tingle and she starts to giggle and then boom, there's Jesus in swaddling clothing. That's not what had happened. This woman grunted. She screamed. She did whatever. Have you been in a birthing room? Right? Listen, there was no difference. It was a hot mess. Yes, she gave birth to the Prince of Peace, but she brought the Prince of Peace into this world with a lot of pain and a lot of agony. Now I'm thinking about Joseph. He's like, man, I get a freebie on this one. The next one, she's going to look at me and say, this is your fault. But this one, I don't need to claim, right? Some of you just caught that. Let me explain. Let me explain. So the first child Mary had wasn't Joseph's. Have you ever heard of the birds and the bees? Okay. Anyway, so some of you parents got young ones in like, dude, stop right now. That's next month. We're doing the talk. Um, Here's another thing. This family was being hunted by Herod. Can you imagine leaving on foot because somebody wants to kill your son because he might be the next king? And so they're looking to destroy that baby while you're pregnant. And so they're on the run in a foreign land. There's no room at the Marriott. They're in a, a, a cave. And like you talk about being born as a human. Jesus came into the world as human as you can get. No comforts, right? And so here's another way we sanitize Jesus. The appearance and the image we've created of Lysol Jesus. And this is, this is interesting because when you look at the pictures, um, no matter what race, this is what I love. I, I went to Asia and they got, they got Asian Jesus, like they, they, their image of Jesus, unless it's been too westernized, which most of the world has. But you know, there's, there's Asian Jesus, 
Looks like, I mean, I'm not trying to judge, I mean, but some pictures of, G I'm like, who is that? Is that a samurai warrior? No, that's Jesus. You know, you go to African-American culture, you have a very black Jesus, you have European Jesus, you have Samoan, I've seen it all. There's pictures and that's fine because we're relating with humanity. But what we've done is we've created this like, he's either, he's either this white, perfect complexion, flowing hair, anti-wrinkle cream Jesus, right? Or if they got his skin color right, the images we get are like this Hollywood lead actor, like CrossFit Jesus. Like he's always extremely good looking. But look at what the scripture says about him. It's not so Lysol. I think I'm gonna ruin people's like, like prayer time after I say some of this, but Isaiah 53, two says, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He's talking about he was so common and so not attractive that he didn't stand out in the crowd like King Saul, who said he was tall and he was handsome and the people were drawn to him because of his looks. Even said of King David, he was ruddy and good looking, right? It said Eliab and Shaman, like some of these brothers, they, they talked about his physical appearance, but to take it a step further, here is blue collar Jesus. He's average Joe Jesus. That's what he looked like, y'all. And, and if you look at historical, like the, the skeletal records and you look at the line they've studied scientifically, they've shown that the average Jewish man in Jesus' time was like five foot one, 115 pounds. Which you understand if you've gone over to Asia or you go to places where maybe they're malnourished, you see that people don't grow as tall. So imagine Jesus as five foot one, 115 pounds. He, he was obviously strong because he was a carpenter. But, but again, we want to sanitize and clean it up. And we want to make him less human and more like a God. So let's put him at six foot four and, and let's make him look like a tight end in the NFL. Or let's make him look perfect like he just walked off the cover of GQ. But I'm telling you, I say all this to say, Jesus embraced humanity and he's not afraid that we do too as long as our humanity is spirit-led and under his lordship. Let me show you a picture. So uh, before I show this picture, popular mechanics went and they asked these scientists that deal with anthropology and people that specialize in biblical studies and history and skeletal records and lineage and genealogy from different ethnicities and tribes. And, and so they literally took all this information from the Bible, <clears throat> description, line of Judah, and they came up with what as close as they could come to what Jesus probably looked like. Now, Nobody has the picture. I do. The Holy Spirit delivered it to me personally in my prayer time, but uh, I'm the only one. Uh, no, but this is more likely what he looked like. That's the Jesus that they came up with based on every description in scripture and the facts that we have to our day. How many are ha having a hard time now with your Christianity and your approaching Jesus, right? With everything I've said. All that, you can take the picture down so... People stay encouraged. Uh, I want my European Jesus. Um, but check this out. And here's where we get to the point and why it matters. Jesus is as much God as he is man. How about after he ascended? Well, then he stopped being man, right? Now he's just God because he ascended and he floated up to heaven. 
Look what, after he rose from the dead, he visits his disciples and they already saw him on the road to Emmaus and he reveals himself. They didn't know who he was. And then all of a sudden, like these disciples are gathered, they're talking. And while they were still talking, it says about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you, which would be really weird. Like he's not there and then peace be with you. It'd be super creepy and scary. And he just appears. There he is. He, out of the blue, he materializes. They were startled and frightened, thinking that he was a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Or why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands, look at my feet. It is I myself. Watch this. Touch me and see. And then he says, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus rose in a celestial body, but that body that was spiritual had flesh and bones. It was human. Now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? He goes on and maybe some of you are doubting. He says, okay, if you don't believe me, let me, let me pass the ghost test. He says this, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He's trying to prove, listen, ghosts don't eat broiled fish because they're allergic to seafood, right? No, he's saying this because he's like, look, I am a human and I'm still God. I'm fully God and I'm fully man. And for eternity, we in heaven, actually heaven will come down here, here on earth and we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Lord, our King, our God, and he will be God, but he will also be a man for eternity, just like you and I. The only difference is, is we still have an upgrade due in our body. We get the 2.0 and we get the full mind of Christ. And so why does it matter? Because number one, our salvation hangs on the reality of the incarnation if he wasn't fully man, then we are not redeemed from our sin because it was a man who sinned and it had to be a man who died to pay for that sin. That's why it couldn't have been a woman. It had to actually, Adam was the one that was charged. And so it had to be a man that had blood running through his veins and it had to be God because he had to be sinless. That's why his dad was the father and Mary, the woman, the human was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And you have fully God, fully man in the person of Jesus. Number two, our sanctification hinges on this reality. Because if, if, I, if I know that I'm to be like Christ and Christ was a person yet divine, that means that I need to embrace my human life, meaning my work life, my, my sleep, my food, my relationships, life here on this earth, my gifts, my talents, my interests. I need to embrace it, but I need to embrace it in a way that says, how can I turn this into worship and a witness? How do I let this life of mine right here, right now, how do I live this life by faith versus trying to deny my humanity and waiting for eternity? It's part of our sanctification. And number three, it's part of our evangelism in our witness and the way we see this, it's, it either helps or it hinders our ability to reach other people. Because in sharing the true saving gospel, we have to understand that God will speak through our human endeavors as long as we see every part of it as an extension 
of our life in Christ and a way to point to him and give him glory. So in Christ, what happens with the incarnation for us is that it removes the dividing line between the secular and the sacred. Here's what I mean by this. And I want you to really catch this because this is where I think Christians have a real hard time. Like, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't know how to like witness to people. I don't know how to let my Christianity be known. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to be spiritual. I don't know enough scripture. But instead, if I just see this, we, we categorize our life. We have a secular part and a sacred part. If I ask you to take a calendar out right now, and for the next 30 days, write down all your appointments, all your activities, all your events. And what have I told you? If you take, just take a yellow highlighter and circle all the areas or activities that are considered spiritual or sacred. You would probably circle prayer, life group. Um, we're going to watch Passion of the Christ next week. You would probably circle Bible study, your Devo time. You would, you would if you're serving in a ministry, you would circle that. That would be yellow. And then I'd say, hey, take a pink highlighter and circle all of your human or, or, or secular activities. The stuff that wouldn't be categorized as spiritual. You'd circle work, mealtime, you know, golf. You'd circle your workout, time at the gym, the fishing trip. You know, you'd circle these type of things. But what God wants us to see is that all of it should be yellow. Because what happens when you receive Christ and you understand the God-man the one who became one of us, and you understand that he loves our humanity, he said, I want you to understand that your whole life is an act of worship and expression of my kingdom. I went on a fishing trip, took my son uh, just Friday and for his 18th birthday, went on a fishing trip and with uh, Mark Valdez and this incredible guy. He's a Native American fishing guide. And you might not categorize that under the yellow, but we're catching salmon on the river and... We're out in God's creation and we're thanking Jesus that he allows us to engage and, you know, come home with some fillets. And at the end, here we're all circled up. This is a, a Christian guy. We're circled up just thanking God and praying for one another, you know, on a riverbank with salmon laying next to us. Just some brothers that are out on a spiritual adventure with some fishing poles. Listen, when we understand that, it's less stressful to think of like, man, how do I love God more? Love him when you take a bite of steak and thank him that he gave it to you. When you have a glass of wine or when you sit down and you get together with friends to watch the Seahawk game, the goal is, is to merge the tooth. It's when we separate them in our mind and we don't bring God into the middle of it and we don't find ways to glorify him. That's when it becomes secular. But the goal of Christianity is to say, everything I do, everything I am, it's a witness. I want people to see that the way I enjoy my life, I'm enjoying it as unto the Lord. Yeah. The way I love my kids, the way I love my wife, the, the way I work. You know, when you show up to work, Monday is not drudgery. Monday is, is a way that you show your witness by glorifying God with the strength of your hands and the talent he's given you. And when you show up with a great attitude, being the best worker on the job for the glory of God, it now turns your whole life into a reflection of the God-man. Because now through your humanity, you're pointing to his divinity. Amen? Come on, you can give Jesus praise for that. And finally, listen, if you can't do it for the glory of God, you can't turn everything 
spiritual in your humanity. For instance, you can't glorify God by punching somebody in the face that you don't like, okay? I can because I know who to punch, right? Um, but you don't have that kind of discernment, okay? You can't glorify God by, uh, with sex outside of marriage, out of the marriage context between a man and a woman at an altar where you make a covenant. Any sex outside of that covenant, you cannot glorify God with that. Inside marriage, it is beautiful. It's worship. It's, it's an expression of the gift he gave you as a couple, right? You can't glorify God by getting drunk. You can glorify him with a glass of wine. The Bible doesn't say there's a problem with that, but you know your limits. I mean, maybe it's an issue for you. So if it's conviction and you can't do something out of faith, then you can't glorify God with it if you can't do it in faith. And so this is what the Lord says. And let me end this because this is the powerful closing to the, to the message. You know, when you think of people in the Old Testament or in scripture that were anointed with the Holy Spirit to do something significant. When you think of men like, okay, Holy Ghost fell on this guy or this gal to do this. What do you think of? You think of Elijah, Holy Ghost, Spirit of God comes upon him. He calls down fire from heaven, consumes this offering. Uh, you might think of Samson who killed a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey, like lifts these city gates. You might think of, you know, Moses who's filled with the Spirit to lead Israel God's people out of bondage and he does signs and wonders and he stretches forth his staff and by the power of God, you see a Red Sea part. You might think of New Testament believers who were anointed in the book of Acts and they prophesied and they healed the sick and they cast out devils. That's how we tend to categorize the power of the Holy Spirit on a human. But I wanna show you something that might encourage you today. All of that is needed. All of that we should pray for. God says, believe for miracles. God says, expect the supernatural. But in Exodus, we see this incredible passage and they're getting ready to build God, his tabernacle. And here's the Lord and he speaks to Moses and he says this, see, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri. There was a, a Russian in there. Son of Uri and son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Now watch this. And I have filled him with the spirit of God. Oh, what's he gonna do? He's gonna heal some sick. He's gonna part some waters. Here's how it shows up. With wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. Here's how the Holy Spirit shows up. Here's how the power shows up. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So this man was literally anointed by God to be a contractor, to be a general contractor, to be a superintendent of a construction crew. Think about that. Anointed by God to do that. That doesn't sound spiritual, does it? Well, it does is if you realize my life is not my own, but it's to give God glory. So everything I do is for him. Then it says later, I won't go into it, but others were gifted by the Spirit to make furniture, to carve, to weave clothing, to make fragrances and oil. Reminds me of 1 Peter 4, 10. It says, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. And I wanna, I wanna ask you this question today because 
whether it's sales, some of you are anointed for sales, music, design, landscaping, business management, but have you seen it as worship and witness? It sounds silly, but God wants to express himself and make himself known through all of that. We just have to be intentional about it. Bilingual faith drives me to keep asking the question, how can what I'm doing right now be an experience and an expression of Jesus, right? Moms, making lunch, bedtimes, breaking up fights between your kids. How can this experience express Jesus to my kids? How can I experience God in the midst of it? Bilingual faith gives eternal meaning and purpose to the mundane. And it reminds me to be heavenly minded about my earthly responsibilities. It's all about my human life, living it to the full by the leading of the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Jesus. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me today. You're in here and the greatest way that people come to Christ statistically is through relationships. And so it's people that say, you know what, it's, I'm not waiting for a sermon, I'm not waiting for an altar call, but I'm gonna live my life every moment for the glory of God. I'm gonna live my life every moment to make Jesus known. And in doing so, I want to be excellent in everything I do. I want to invite Jesus to show me where he's at in everything I do. I want to be mindful that God so desperately is trying to reveal himself through everything I do. And so Father, right now, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would remind us that our life is our witness. You would remind us that our humanity is beautiful under your Lordship. God, help us to be witnesses to the people around us. Help us to treat our marriage like a ministry, our family like a ministry, our job, our health, our money, our finances. Help us to turn it spiritual by realizing the secular has been removed and it's all sacred. Come on, I want you to just repeat this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, help me to live on purpose. Help me to show you to the people around me by living that incarnational life in Jesus that is deeply spiritual but totally normal at the same time. Help me to experience you in the mundane. I pray in Jesus' name that my roots would go deep in you that my reach to others would go far. I am your minister and I choose to minister in my everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God.